This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. Hope your day is going well. Today, the Australian Alpaca Association is getting serious about trying to reduce the risk of disease spreading through livestock. And also today, the head of the NT Cattlemen's Association is fed up with the federal government for taking so long to sort out a class action against the 2011 live export ban to Indonesia. David Connolly is particularly ticked off with the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, who is accusing claimants from the cattle industry of taking too long to counterclaim. There'd be none of this taxpayers' money to pay if they had a followed industry and their department's decision. So Murray's just being naughty there. The other thing he said was we've got to get our lawyers in hand. Don't worry about getting our lawyers in hand. Our lawyers won the case. Our lawyers are playing A-grade. The government's lawyers here are playing the under-12s. What they can do is they can all step up and put their man pants on and they can close this case now because they've got a very generous counter-offer. They can just get onto it and stop the finger-pointing because this started with the Labor government. Some more classic one-liners from David Connolly. A little later this hour, you'll find out the details of the new counterclaim from the cattle industry, which could end up being close to $900 million. Also, a significantly larger yarding of sheep at Mushay today, and it sounds like prices were good on all prime categories. Uh, Tracy Kilner will go through the details just before the news at one o'clock. Six past twelve, here on the Country Hour. Pilbara pastoralist Michael Thompson is calling on the state government to abolish Section 104 of the Land Administration Act before someone is shot and injured or killed. Section 104 states, Aboriginal persons may at all times enter upon any unenclosed and unimproved parts of the land under a pastoral lease to seek their sustenance in their accustomed manner. Michael Thompson from Mundabul and Ghana Station says the section needs to be removed to align with firearm laws, which require visitors to seek permission from the landowner to use firearms on the property. Michael, what was the catalyst for this call for the abolition of Section 104? Oh, look, I went to the PGA with me and Belinda and, and listened to Paul Papalier talk about the safety for people with firearms and changing all the laws and I made him aware of an incident uh, where my manager went out at night and met police on the property and four people in a in a vehicle and they were Aboriginals shooting with a spotlight. The actual spotlight did come on my manager and the police and my manager said to the police, well you'd want to get behind the vehicle just in case you know there's a kangaroo between us and and yourselves, because we'll get shot, and they couldn't believe it, these two constables, and you think to yourself, well, you know, that's how vulnerable they were. I'm not, you know, it would have been accidental had they been shot, but still. So then, of course, they waited for the car because they had drones up in the air and watched the car come out and, then, yeah, you know, to in, into the part of the paddock where they were, and then the police went over and spoke to them, and they said, well, look, we're allowed on here because of two reasons, and one is this Section 104. They knew the law. They entered through a gate because every single gate on Munda Station is locked and on Badari, bar one. 
The one on Bedari is open for people to use for recreational purposes, for fishing only, no shooting. The other gate is to a mine site. Now, the mine site is signed. I have it signed with my sign, and the gate was open because quads, which are, you know, trucks carrying four trailers are in and out of there from six in the morning to six at night. They entered through that gate, which they believe is open. Now, I don't know how, if you read that paragraph, unimproved land. Well, isn't a mine site improved land? I have a tank and a trough uh, not more than 500 metres from that particular gate. Is that not improved land? Well, there's one grey area. Then the next grey area is in their accustomed manner. So what is that? Does that mean you're allowed to use a full drive a high-powered firearm and a spotlight. I'll never know. That's where it's very frustrating because Section 104 of the Land Act overrules the Firearms Act. Now, so I you're, worri- you're worried about someone being shot and injured or killed? A- accidentally. I mean, high-powered rifles, are, you can shoot flat over about a, a mile, which is 1.6 k's. I've got people that I give access to for the use of part of the parcel lease that I use for recreational use, I do not allow firearms, but if they were to be shot, who kicks the tent down the road? Me? Are they going to kick me? The lawyer's going to kick me down the road? I've got my workers. I've got the police that come out and supported my manager that night. My manager put his life at risk, and it is his decision, not mine. And what support did he get? Because the police have told me because of Section 104, they've got nowhere to go. Michael, now, are you genuinely worried about someone being shot and injured or killed, or is it really that you don't want these Indigenous groups on your property? I'm not into that at all. I believe the law is in place and should be respected. I don't care what where, where, where you... Uh, come from in this country, we all should live under one law and one flag. And the sooner that happens, instead of this grey, what we've got in this country at the moment is laws that are narrow, that are enforceable, and grey that is unenforceable. And that is the problem in the North at the moment. I can't have people, I don't care whether what colour skin you got or what your nationality is or what you call yourself, we're all Australians and we all live in one country and we all should live under one law. And I have got my, I've had my staff have near misses 15 years ago and it never went anywhere, Belinda. And this is where, if this minister is for real about protecting the safety of people from firearms, shouldn't Section 104 have a, be looked at? So that's what you want. You want changes made to this section, Section 104 of the Land Administration Act. I do. And and what should it say? How should it be changed? Because it is grey. Now, we're all Australians in this country. To me, there is no... I have no favourites. I don't care who you are or where you've come from. You're an Australian to me. And the firearms law says you need the owner's permission to use a firearm on his land or his pastoral lease. But Section 104 overrules that. So what's the point? We're either one way or the other. If the Indigenous people are allowed to come on this land and use the firearm without asking me for the use of it, then how do I tell my workers 
that I've got to drive around and do a 600-kilometre windmill run that it's safe out there because there could be someone shooting there. It, it doesn't add up, Linda. It's just not common sense. And then the Workers' Compensation Act wants to sue me or take me to court and lock me up. If one of my workers gets shot because of this, of this Section 104, where, where do I stand? Michael, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Belinda. Michael Thompson from Munda Station in the Pilbara. 13 past 12. Tim Howling is a director at Cornerstone Legal. He says changes need to be made to Section 104 of the Land Administration Act, which respects the community that holds the native title rights but limits access to communities outside of those rights. Tim, how valid are the safety concerns raised just now by Michael Thompson about Section 104 of the Land Administration Act? When Section 104 of the Act was introduced into the Land Administration Act as part of the amendments to all of the legislation uh, and a carry forward of those provisions, it meant that Aboriginal people were able to access pastoral stations without notice to the pastoral lessee that they were coming onto the station for the purpose of seeking their sustenance. Now, Belinda, that was a section which you could well imagine was workable at the time because the people, the local Aboriginal people were expected to access pastoral stations. The problem really that a lot of pastoralists are now experiencing is that people from all over the state are coming by way of vehicle on sealed roads and accessing pastoral stations and using guns while they do so. Uh, That's a problem for both the pastoralist as well as for the Aboriginal people because from time to time, you can imagine the pastoralist is also required to uh, use firearms on their station and that can cause an intersection between the two and a particular safety issue. How many other pastoralists or landowners are raising similar sorts of concerns, uh, similar to what we've just heard from Michael Thompson from Munda Station? This is a problem that has regularly been raised in the native title process, but it is regularly being put that Aboriginal people are entitled to come onto pastoral stations for the purpose of seeking sustenance and using firearms for that purpose. So it is encountered in almost every native title Indigenous land use agreement in which there's a discussion between the Aboriginal people, the local Aboriginal people and the pastoral station owner about how the Aboriginal people will come onto the station, how they will use firearms on the station and how they'll have some interaction with the pastoralist before coming onto the station. The big problem that we've got, Belinda, is that people are coming, for example, from Albany up to the Pilbara regions and going onto pastoral stations and using firearms without respecting the Indigenous land use agreement process by giving notice prior to coming onto the station, causing the sorts of safety concerns, for example, that Munda station have experienced. So what Michael Thompson is calling for is the abolition of Section 104. He wants it to align with Firearms Act and therefore people have to seek permission from the landowner before they use firearms on a property. What are the chances of that happening? Is that, is that going to be the best outcome? I don't believe that there's going to be any opportunity to remove the provision of Section 104, but there certainly is opportunity to ensure that the provision properly respects what local Aboriginal people within an area of a pastoral station wish to do on that pastoral station and that the section 
respects the fact that they are the people who have been given the Indigenous uh, or, or Aboriginal native title. And so they ought to be the people that are able to come onto the pastoral station for the purpose of collecting their sustenance. But not the it communities really outside of that area. That's right. So there's, I think, great prospect for the Minister to limit the provisions of Section 104, uh, to expect that the section will be entirely abolished. I don't believe that to be the case. And I should also imagine that Aboriginal native title holders would wish to ensure that they are the people who Section 104 is reserved for and not so that people, for example, from Sydney can come over to a pastoral station uh, with a set of firearms and use those firearms on the pastoral station. It's a problem, it's occurring, and something needs to be done because in this day and age, under the new WorkSafe legislation, farmers and pastoralists are particularly concerned with allowing people to come onto their stations to use firearms. We just need to have a greater respect to expect that there is a method by which people can do so safely. Tim, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Belinda. Tim Howling, he's a director at Cornerstone Legal. 18 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Raylene Button is a Gariyara person. Her country covers about 32,000 kilometres of land and waters across the Pilbara. She doesn't believe the law needs to be changed to address any safety concerns about Indigenous people accessing pastoral properties. She says this all boils down to improving relationships between the two groups. Raylene, do you have similar safety concerns about Indigenous people coming onto pastoral properties here in WA? I, I would have similar concerns. However, my understanding is Michael doesn't have a relationship with the Native title holders. If there was that same understanding, that same relationship, you wouldn't have then people wandering onto property. With Aboriginal people, we've never had fences and things that prohibited our people to go onto land. The land was pretty much free for everybody to roam and move and be able to trade. There wasn't this fence line. There was boundaries. People understood that, but they communicated that. This is the breakdown we have with a lot of the pastoral owners. We don't have communication. And there is no relationship. Raylene, can you give us a sense of, you know, in this area in the Pilbara, I mean, would most native title holders have a good relationship with the pastoralists or would most, you know, be in conflict? How, how does it work in the Pilbara from what you know? So I guess from my understanding is that majority of the groups in our Pilbara regions don't have good relationships with pastoralists. You might have a small number of people or groups that do have, but majority of us don't because they're still locking the gates, not allowing us to go and access country. We've, you know, had to do heritage on and checking on sites and our ranger programs, but we aren't getting access into those areas because now we've got to go to a pastoralist who doesn't even take our phone calls or respond to our emails. So we follow the process, but it's not the same, it's not given back. You don't want the gates 
locked? Because very often, I mean, that's why pastoralists are uh, locking the gates to, you know, as a safety precaution in terms of the cattle on the property. But you would prefer that not to be the case. Well, it shouldn't be because at the end of the day, if we've got a relationship, then we're able to say, well, hello, if we're coming out there, we're wanting to do this on country, we should be able to do that or give our prescribed body corporations, the native title um, organisations, give them a key to say they're coming out because they're going to do this. But give each other enough um, sufficient notice that they're coming out to do this on country. Yeah, okay. So there should be some sort of communication that you are, uh, you know, a group yes. is coming out. Yes. Okay. But yes. that's that's not happening at the moment. No, it's not. So how do we how do we fix this? I mean, we've just heard from Michael Thompson and the lawyer saying, you know, maybe there should be changes to the law to make this more effective. But I mean, from what you're saying, it just really is quite simple in terms of building on a relationship between the two. And that that's all it comes down to is communication and having an open and transparent conversation, a, a dialogue where you can discuss these issues. Going around changing a Heritage Act and screaming blue murder, not only does it then force other parties then to challenge that, it creates more conflict in the community. Because we've seen what happened with the Heritage Act very recently, where the government quickly decided, rather than going with the new act and the changes, he, with that, consulting the um, Indigenous groups, the native title holders, he went back and reverted back to the uh, 1972 Heritage Act, which pretty much took us 10 years back in time again, or 50 years in time again. And again, we shouldn't have to go through that process because it doesn't give us any access to country to be able to go back and look at our sites to see what's happening because pastoralists also have to remember their cattle also damaging our sites, transforming the country. We can no longer get our traditional bush medicines. We only have a handful. Our traditional food, we only have a handful of that. A lot of our country has changed significantly because of the pastoralists. Raylene, how do we fix this? How... Do, how... Do we improve the situation and that relationship? What, what's the next step here? All it is is having all parties come sit at the table and then looking at a process, looking at a strategic plan or something that moves them forward and then be able to say, okay, this is what we can agree to, this is what we should be able to do and this is how we work together. And how confident are you that that's going to happen? I'm not confident it can happen, but I believe it can happen. As humans, it's not difficult. These are just simple things. We live every day by these processes, and all we have to do is just adhere to it and follow it, rather than trying to bang and fight against a system that's a hundred and more years old and just say, all right, let's be civil about it. Let's sit down, let's discuss, and let's make move and discuss a way forward. Raylene, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Raylene Button, she is a Gadi person 
and the Police Minister Paul Papalia has been contacted for comment. 25 past 12 here on The Country Hour. A few texts coming through on this conversation. You can be part of it too. The text is 0448 And a few texts coming through saying uh, very similar to what John from Carnamar says, and that is if the Aboriginals involved were serious about cultural heritage, wouldn't they be hunting with spears and boomerangs instead of rifles? And that's from Brad in Lancelin, Matthew from Kalgoorlie and Les from Jero making similar sorts of points. This too from Sandy in Meriden. This is ridiculous. The Indigenous people didn't have firearms thousands of years ago. If they want to get sustenance in a cultural way, then use spears and boomerangs. So when one of these Indigenous people gets shot, they will do something about it. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four twenty five past twelve. You're part of the country hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. An update from the newsroom isn't far away in about four minutes at half past 12 and then we'll check weather conditions right around the state. First though, the Australian Alpaca Association is getting serious about trying to reduce the risk of disease spreading through livestock. The Emergency Animal Disease Response Agreement is between government and industry groups to manage outbreaks such as foot and mouth and lumpy skin disease. But the Alpaca Association's Steve Rideout says a fair bit of work needs to be done before they can be considered a genuine partner in such an agreement. Biosecurity in the alpaca industry is not at a standard or knowledge standard of where we need to be from a member base. We need our breeders and members to have a consistent um, biosecurity plan right across the board from farm to um, sales to export. So a word that's coming to mind for me is traceability. Do you think that's important for your industry? 100%. Traceability is the key aspect of biosecurity in Australia or all all programs of biosecurity, farm biosecurity, the NLS program, any traceability of where a disease has possibly come from is paramount in the country's ability to fight it. You mentioned NLIS. What is that? NLIS is a National Livestock Identification Scheme. It's pretty much an an ear tag. Uh, That tag is related to the property of origin and they use that through all modes of transport, uh, export. Other industries like the cattle, sheep and goat industry have been using it for a number of years now, quite a long time. And it's proved successful and it's well recognised within uh, government rules and regulations and in some states it's actually uh, legislated. Why Why is it now though Steve that you're wanting to be a part of the NLIS because for some just you know they may think of the alpaca industry as a bit of a hobby farm thing. Yeah the industry's gone past the hobby farm aspect a number of years ago and we're more into a semi-commercial uh, industry and we need to have broad cross-section of uh, traceability Each farm needs to have a set standard, their own biosecurity and traceability. Other industries have that, the cattle, sheep and goats. For us, I lift our profile to a degree and have that professionalism uh, into our biosecurity plan, the NLAS program uh, needs to be adopted. Has the industry been hit in the past with 
any of those major diseases? No, alpaca are a bit of a, a funny animal. There's not a lot of research being done on alpaca, on the diseases that we get. Yes, they are, are ruminant, um, so they're associated with diseases like blue tongue disease, uh, Yoni's disease, Q fever. And we don't have any species-specific tests for camelids, and that's one thing that we were trying to get up and running through the NLAS program, once it's legislated, we then have the ability to start looking at levies, imposing levies on sales. And that's not an impost on the seller. It'll be a small impost on the buyer. It won't hurt buyers at all because it's going to be a very small portion, but it then allows us to accumulate funds and then approach government bodies, scientific bodies to do R&D. And again, the flow on effect for that is that we can then have trials of vaccines uh, for camelids that will may open up more markets for us overseas. What is that demand like right now for alpaca in Australia? The demand, it's a bit of a two, a bit of a, a question there that uh, has many angles. Um, from a livestock export perspective, our quality of stock that goes through to Asia is of the pet to middle standard that um, our farmers probably don't want to breed with anymore. Uh, they've gone past that quality stock. And we've been locked out of uh, New Zealand and Europe for a number of years now because of our testing issues with one certain test. So from an export perspective, we're a bit of a hiatus. But from a clip perspective, i.e. alpaca wool, we can't produce enough. From that perspective, it looks quite healthy, but we need to grow our grower base, but we also need to improve our clip from where it is currently today, number-wise, to we'd love to see that double in, in the near future to enable our ability as an industry to um, satisfy the market demand for the wool. In your crystal ball, where would you like to see the alpaca industry in 10 years or so? I'm hoping in the next 12 months we are able to have a direct access to the UK market We've got a meeting with them in January next year to go over uh, traceability, farm biosecurity um, aspects of a protocol. So we're then able to then have a direct access to the UK market and then hopefully on from there into, into Europe, which will reopen what we were doing five to six years ago via New Zealand. Steve Rideout, he is the Director Responsible for Market Access and Trade with the Australian Alpaca Association, and he was speaking to Kate Forrester. 29 to 1, Jonathan Hopper is here with the latest from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. At its December meeting, the Reserve Bank Board has left its cash rate target on hold at 4.35%. Having responded to stronger-than-expected quarterly inflation figures by lifting the cash rate to 4.35% in November, the RBA has used softer-than-expected monthly inflation data as a reason to sit tight in December. With no further meetings scheduled for January borrowers should be safe from further rate rises until at least February. Virgin Australia cabin crew have voted in favour of strike action over pay and working conditions, threatening to disrupt travel over the busy Christmas period. More than 98% of Virgin crew who are members of the Flight Attendants Association of Australia have voted for a series of 24-hour stoppages. Further negotiations are set to take place this week. And Indonesian authorities have halted the search for 12 climbers after Mount Merapi volcano erupted again. Officials say the volcano has been spewing a new burst of hot ash as high as 800 metres into the air. Thanks, Belinda.
Jonathan, thank you for that update. I appreciate that. It is uh, 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And in response to the conversation we've been having this hour about Indigenous people accessing uh, pastoral properties to come on and hunt or fish or look for medicines, whatever it is they want to do under those native title rights, this has just come through on the text. It's all well and good people getting permission to shoot on properties. But when they've been given permission and then they drive through our crops that are just about ready to harvest and leave rubbish laying around everywhere, then go and leave rue carcasses at gateways. Of course we lock up our farms. We would happily let them shoot if they respected others' properties. From Tamara in the Wheat Belt. Thank you for that. The text is 0448 27 to 1. Still to come, it's off to Mouche today for the results of the sheep market. And also an update for you on the cattle industry's class action against the 2011 live export ban to Indonesia. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad, how is it around the southwest land division this afternoon? Good afternoon, Belinda. Just some high cloud at the moment. So it's a uh, uh, mostly cloudy day, but generally still fairly dry. We've got a broad area of low pressure across the Gascoigne to the interior. And uh, that is starting to generate one or two thunderstorms. Today, uh, the thunderstorms... Uh, are likely to stay away from the southwest land division. But from tomorrow, we see a west coast trough developing briefly, just for tomorrow. And uh, that's likely to drag the thunderstorm hap- uh, the thunderstorms that are happening to the north and east uh, of the southwest land division into potentially the central wheat belt uh, and into the far northeastern parts of the Great Southern, so northeast of Lake Grace, and also potentially extending into the far eastern parts of the central west. These are going to be generally dry thunderstorms. I'm not expecting rain out of them. It'll be less than a millimetre. The Potentially one or two thunderstorms may produce up to two millimetres, but uh, not expecting any rain, um, any significant rain out of these thunderstorms. There is that risk of dry lightning uh, that may uh, lead to elevated bushfire danger, but apart from that, uh, not much rainfall. And that seems to continue um, sort of uh, into into Thursday as well. Um, the areas east of about Southern Cross may see a little bit more moisture from the thunderstorms tomorrow, uh, potentially up to three millimeters. But um, and that's likely to continue to Thursday as well. The area east of Lake Grace and Southern Cross may see a, a little bit of rainfall, a few millimeters. But the area west of uh, Southern Cross um, and uh, and sort of. Uh, the rest of the northeastern parts of the Great Southern, basically east of Wajin, it's more likely dry thunderstorms. Um, so that's the story for Thursday. Um, Friday, we have got a very firm ridge of high pressure that's going to extend into southern WA for the remainder of the week. Kent. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Those dry thunderstorm activity may clear very quickly out to the eastern Friday. So back to sunny conditions. And with that firm ridge of high pressure developing, we do see cooler temperatures across much of the southwest land division, except the west coast where we will see a warming trend return on the weekend. Let's take a look into northern and eastern parts now, Angeline. 
Uh, we've had a severe heat wave that's been gripping the northern and central and eastern parts of the state, and that's likely to continue for another couple of days. Uh, the Kimberley has seen some gusty thunderstorms, but, but rainfall has been generally sporadic. A few places have seen rainfall totals more than 20 millimetres. Today, again, we're seeing those uh, daytime thunderstorms starting to develop through central and eastern Kimberley, and that's likely to continue over the next few days. Rainfall will generally be about 5 to 15 millimetres. There could be potentially heavier falls, 15 to 30 millimetres from these thunderstorms of, across the northern and central parts of the Kimberley. Now, the rest of uh, the sort of the northern and eastern parts of the state, those thunderstorms are extending southwards uh, through the eastern parts of the Gascoigne, the interior, and through the gold fields all the way down to about Eucla. But they're generally dry thunderstorms. So today, uh, dry thunderstorms, not expecting much rain. Rainfall, uh, if it does happen less than a millimeter, uh, some areas may see a little bit more. Now, from tomorrow, uh, we do see an upper trough trying, uh, starting to influence uh, these uh, these very unstable and very hot uh, conditions through central and eastern parts of the state. So, those thunderstorms might become a little bit more. Um, uh, juicy, I should say. So uh, potentially parts of the gold fields um, and into the Eucline, also the Esperance region might see some good falls over the next few days. More so uh, from, uh, 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 more so probably Thursday into Friday through the Esperance region. But areas south of Kalgoorlie into the Eucline region will start to see those potentially moderate, isolated heavy falls uh, from tomorrow. And again, um, with with that ridge digging in from the east uh, on Friday, we'll see a rapid clearance uh, heading into the weekend where that uh, firm ridge of high pressure starts to dominate the weather across much of southern WA into the weekend. Now, it's a solid uh, high-pressure system that's heading our way this uh, this, uh, uh, this weekend. And so it's not only going to clear the showers and thunderstorms, uh, but it is going to send a dry, cooler, southeasterly surge all the way to the base of the Kimberley. So we're finally going to see that persistent heat wave that's been gripping the northern and eastern parts of the state um, ease. So that heat is going to be flushed out. Uh, just another couple of days of that uh, heat wave, severe heat wave lingering uh, through those areas. But later in the week, we will see that heat get flushed into the northern Kimberley. Um, there will be some uh, low to severe intensity heat wave still affecting the Kimberley this weekend, but much of the area south will see a much cooler and windier change arrive uh, by the end of the week. And the warnings this afternoon? Um, so currently there is a heat wave that is still current. Uh, so severe heat wave warning for Kimberley, Pilbara, Gascoigne, Goldfields, North Interior and South Interior. So we're seeing temperatures, daytime temperatures in the high 30s to low 40s and overnight minimums are pretty uh, uh, pretty muggy as well. Um, sort of in the high 20s, some areas are not even dropping below 30 overnight. And that should, uh, those conditions should increase, improve over the next uh, couple of days. Um, and then we have got a marine wind warning. Uh, so uh uh, strong and warning from the Ningaloo gas going to the Geraldton coasts today. Thank you, Angeline. Appreciate that. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson in the studio. Much rain about? 
No, once again, it's only in the Kimberley, really, in the last 24 hours. Debisa had six mils. Kununurra's airport recorded 14 and the checkpoint 16. Mount Barnett, seven. Mount Winifred, 12. And Wyndham recorded 26. Nowhere else at all in WA recorded any rain, never mind at five or above. If you've got 15 minutes to burn, that's all the time you need to get your bushfire plan ready. Make sure you've got a battery-powered radio, spare batteries and know your local ABC frequency so you can stay up to date. You can text FIREPLAN to 0448 922 604 to get a link to start your plan now. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. Yeah, that's all a part of Emergency Awareness Day. So if you missed that, the only word you need to text in is FIREPLAN and it's just to the regional text number, so 0448 922604 and you'll get the outlines of a bushfire plan and also a page where you can search for local ABC AM radio frequencies for anywhere in the whole state not just for where you live but you know when you go travelling and you're like how do I get the ABC again that's how you can find it as far as fighting fires goes This is the third year the Grain Harvest Aerial Fleet has been in operation. So in the last five weeks, the water bombers have attended 16 incidents, clocking up about 330 flying hours. Wayne Green is in charge of the Great Southern for the Department of Fire and Emergency Services, so DFIS. And Tara DeLangraff caught up with him at the airfield near Esperance, where two fixed-wing aircraft are currently being based. So this is part of our grain harvest aerial uh, fleet, so the DFIS pays for that each year and we do that in support of DBCA or in support with DBCA and DPIRT. So each year now for the last three we've been conducting the grain harvest um, aerial fleet uh, deployments and that ranges from the Midwest Gascoyne through to Goldfields Midlands, Upper Great Southern and the Great Southern and that is informed by the risk that's on the ground with the crops each year. So how do you look at that risk and then obviously you've got to take into mind as well the season. I mean, it was a much earlier season this year. Yeah, so we actually, because it's flexible, we're able to bring them on to suit the, the risk. And the, the hottest part of the harvest is where we're trying to cover. And this year it was late October that they were brought on, on board. And that was a lot earlier than what we have in the previous years. So you have capacity to, I suppose, just switch them on, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. And and as I say, that's based on the risk. And we do that without impacting on our fire suppression fleet once the high threat period or the bushfire season hits true. And, you know, normally that's around December, but this year we've seen that um, come on early. So across the state, that flexibility in our contracts has allowed us to bring those aerial suppression fleet on um, where the risk is at the right times. Um, So Albany is just, they were the last ones on and they started um, last week or so. And, yeah, they've already been put to to work with the Fitzgerald River National Park fires. And we can hear the planes behind us just starting up there. They're heading off from Esperance as well. Yeah, just on cue, so it was well planned, but no. (laughs) Um, They're heading out to Hyden, and once again, that's the flexibility across our fleet. By the sounds of things, the Hyden guys need some refuelling so that there's always water on the fire ground. These guys will fly up, cover the fire ground whilst the Hyden crew are refuelling and having their break and then swap back over. So who makes that call that, that these planes are needed and to where? I guess the, in terms of the grain harvest, that's based on the information we get from DPIRT. And look, for WA, we've got 9 million hectares of broadacre farming of cropping country. 
um, which is just under the size of Victoria. And so it's a lot of uh, data is captured and a lot of input as to where to locate those those planes. And it does become challenging because we're getting overlapping harvest um, seasons from, from north to south. So the incident controller, and that a lot of the times is the first arriving or a farmer that's a fire control officer, will make that call through their chief to say we, we need some water bombers requested. And then through process, then state air desk up in Perth will then deploy accordingly um, wherever that, that nearest asset is. So how, how often do they get called? Uh, last year, just the grain harvest water bombers, I think they did 205 flights at 28 fires, so or 205 drops, sorry, at 28 fires. And that equates to about 645,000 litres of water from Geraldton to Esperance on, on our fires. You mentioned these planes coming on board for, for the harvest program a lot earlier this year than, than they ever have before. How vital are they? to keeping the, the harvest region safe? Well, we want that rapid, aggressive initial attack. So whatever we can throw at fires, we want to get onto them as soon as possible. And just by having these uh, water bombers strategically placed, it really reduces those response times and gives the, the farmers and our volunteer firefighters on the ground and, and our career, if it gets that big, but let's focus on the grain harvest. The majority of the time, it's our farmers and volunteers that are out there that are fighting these fires so the water bombers give them that, that much needed support to try and extinguish these fires, reduce the risk to the community and then everyone gets back to their business as, as soon as possible. Now for those in the Esperance region the harvest time obviously brings back a lot of memories back to 2015 it was hard then and I think it's still very hard now the scar is still very visible on the landscape from those devastating bushfires. Having I suppose all of these additional resources, do you think it should give farmers some, some solace? I think they've experienced that in terms of over the years, that improvement, our, you know, our aerial fleet now, we're about 30-odd fire suppression or aerial suppression um, resources across WA. To bolster that, we're over 100 plus 116 additional fire trucks that are made available for that high threat period. So the grain harvest is all part of that, as I say, reducing that response time and giving giving our fire crews on the ground that much-needed support they want a lot earlier. We're talking this week and today in particular about making plans and the ability, I suppose, to, to have something in place and act on it if you need to. For farmers, though, of course, where they're fighting, they're often out there fighting the fire themselves and they may have somebody at home, in the office, at the homestead, who maybe they have to have multiple plans I suppose in place of what to do what would you what advice would you give to them and you're dead right they do have multiple plans in place um, and that just comes with the nature of their their business that they're running you know they're they're out there through the threat of the, the summer period they've got all of their support you know and that's whether it's family or staff that are working for them and a lot of them are itinerant workers or backpackers from around the country so um, what we're seeing is that level of professionalism embedded into these farming businesses where they are doing the training, the preparation um, and, and right here in Esperance, you know, a great working example of that is, you know, one of your fire control officers has developed an on-farm safety program and that's tiered. So he will do a level of training for those that are most likely to be out in the crop and, and he wants out in the crop to fight those fires, all the way down to the, the 
guys and girls that are back at the homestead, you know, looking after meals and the support for those staff, you know. And as I say, it's all tiered and the level of training, he's got um, all of his assets along the farm identified and numbered. Um, everyone's trained to which one, the closest one to get to. He's got extra uh, PPEs or clothing there that will help protect them in the event that a, a fire does come through. We've got radios installed. So this is that level of professionalism that we're starting to see ac across the industry. And when I say starting, it's probably been around. It's just being formalised now and put into training packages. Because you mentioned there, there are some farmers, there are some local brigades that are coming up with their own training strategies, with their own checklists. I mean, how amenable is DFES to, to taking some of those options on board? Yeah, so the Bushfire Centre of Excellence is working in terms of flexibility with the delivery of our training packages, and that's now being made to external personnel from D, you know, outside of DFAS. So not only a registered brigade member, but now an itinerant worker and that can log in, and uh, once it get, hits the academy um, properly, they'll be able to log in externally and do that level of training, which it's great for everyone who's involved in the industry then. Now, harvest is starting to wrap up across some parts of of the state because unfortunately it wasn't a, wasn't a great harvest there wasn't much out there to harvest so as some of those farmers maybe take a longer break over the summer period what are some things that they need to consider given that there is a long hot summer still ahead oh there is and look that's one thing that you do get in the communities of WA is that realism yes it's an early finish are we going to see every farmer disappear for holidays? You know, as we were chatting about earlier, you know, you've been here 16 years and you start to see that tiered approach to holidays even where they're staggering it. That's the level of professionalism that we're seeing across our state that volunteers, you know, farmers will, will synchronise their holidays even to make sure that there's something back here for the community and looking after their assets while they're away. So three years into this aerial firefighter harvest program I mean is it here to stay is it is it working well oh, I think the statistics the, the fact that you know we've last year you know 200 odd drops through the harvest period it's that's a sign that it's needed but as everything it will be reviewed and it is reviewed annually um, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of data captured as we lead into the harvest period and then that final decision is made but uh, I think whilst we're seeing that risk on the ground not only the risk to the community, but also the risk to our economy, I think those decisions will be made for the right reasons. DFES Great Southern Superintendent Wayne Green speaking to Tara Delangraft from the airfield near Esperance in the far southeast of the state's grain growing area. Nine minutes to one. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. It's been more than three years since the federal court ruled in favour of the cattle industry's class action against the 2011 live export ban to Indonesia. And yet only the lead claimants, the Brett family, have received any compensation. The federal government has offered to pay the group $215 million, but that figure has been knocked back twice by claimants. The group has now made a counter-offer to the Commonwealth and wants to settle for $510 million plus costs and interest, which means the total settlement could be up to $900 million. NT Cattlemen's Association President David Connolly says they just want this all sorted as soon as possible. The first thing I'd say about this counter-offer is that it's been made begrudgingly. 
uh, and it's being made on behalf of the industry that wants to get this over and done with, is the first point. And the second point is that the, the government have made overtures and, and a fair bit of noise about saying that they'd made an that they'd made an offer and that they hadn't received a counter offer and they were urging industry to make a counter offer. So here it is. And we just want to get the thing over and done with because government's very skillful at dragging these things on. It's gone for what, eleven or twelve years this thing's been going. So we want to get it over and done with so some families can get some closure on this. The Federal government's offer that's been knocked back twice. Can we talk about that? So $215 million. The NFF says there's 215 parties involved in this class action. So that'd be a million bucks each. What is wrong with that? Uh, what's wrong with that, Matt, is like offering $1,000 for a $50,000 horse. It's, it's not in the, you're not in the running. Uh, it's frustrating and it's disrespectful. Some of the expenses that these families, and not just families that are that are, that are grazing families, but trucking companies, uh, live export yards, uh, the whole gamut of the supply chain. Some of the expenses that they've copped in this, and has been ongoing because of the damage that the federal government did to our major customer, have been far away and in excess of that. And you know, I get confidential viewing of that. I see some of the expenses that these people have copped, and. It's disrespectful. Two hundred and fifteen million dollars on this class action, which should round, which should be one point two billion dollars, right? That's where it should start. It's just disrespectful. I mean, I wouldn't go to you, Matt, if you were trying to sell your car and you wanted ten thousand dollars for it and offer you a hundred bucks. It's disrespectful. And and so that's where things are at at the moment. Uh, I, I know the industry has said in the past that you know the damages should come to around that one point two billion dollars, potentially even more. And now you're willing to settle for, what, $510 million in compo plus costs and interest. That's right. I think it's a very generous offer that, that industry is making. And that shows the level of that we've had a gut full of this. We understand how, how powerful, uh, disrespectful government can be in these sort of circumstances where they can just drag you out and drag you out and just we're, we're sick to the guts of that. So, Matt, um, industry's got together and said, right, $510 million plus cost plus interest. Um, it's probably going to roll out somewhere between eight hundred, nine hundred million dollars. It might round out to. That's up to to lawyers and and, and accountants. Um, I'm not privy to that number, but I have been privy to the five hundred and ten offered, which I think's a, a bloody, really genuine, um, generous offer. I'm a reluctant seller on this on this scheme. I reckon we've come. You know, the other argument is we've come this far, and we'd go to court, and we'll get we'll get offered the one point two plus plus um, costs, plus interest. It, you know, it could be $2 billion. And the National Farmers Federation says the government has until the 19th of January next year. Is that right? Yeah, well, the, the offer's made till then. Yep. You know, it's, uh, it's, we'll, we'll make, industry will make this offer. You have to make your decision on the 19th of January. You know, come, come, back, from your, come back from your Christmas break and write out the cheque and get it over and done with. There's a good sell in this. You know, Murray Watt can stand up and say, we've settled this class action. We've saved a, we've saved a poultice of money um, by the actions of, of two governments, his and the opposition. Well, they've both been in this. They've both uh, been holding off on this. He can say, well, we've cleared it up. You know, we, we might be having a struggle in a few other issues at the moment, but at least we've cleared up this cl class action. He can, he can do that. There's a good sell in this. He just needs to walk through the door and make it happen. 
On the delays that you referred to, we've actually got a little bit of audio here from Minister Murray Watt back in October at the NFF conference. Uh, His thoughts on the delays, let's just have a listen to that. Yeah, look, I mean, my preference would be that this had been resolved by now as well, but we made a settlement offer of $215 million worth of taxpayers' money before Christmas last year. We still haven't had a response to that offer. We still haven't had a counter-offer. And frankly, I think the, uh, the claimants need to have a really good hard talk to their lawyers about the strategy that their lawyers are employing. Uh, And I think those lawyers need to get their act together uh, and make sure that they're properly representing their clients who deserve a fair and decent outcome. So there's Minister Murray Watt, who seems to be pointing the finger at the cattle industry's lawyers. What's your take on that, David Connolly? Well, well, my take is that that, uh, Minister Murray Watt's a smart fella. I've always said that. I like Murray Watt. He's got a job to do. He's wrong in a couple of cases, though. The first thing that I take issue to is that Murray cunningly says, you know, we've offered $215 million of taxpayers' money. Well, it's all taxpayers' money. I mean, what he gets paid for his salary is taxpayers' money. There would be no taxpayers' money to pay if the Labor Party hadn't knowingly made a decision against the advice of their department. This misfeasance or malfeasance, whatever the ruling is, is extremely hard, Matt, is extremely hard through a court system to to prosecute, to get a win on, in our layman's language. And we got a win on it because, you know, they made a, a knowingly bad decision. They knew they were making a bad decision. They went ahead and did it anyway. So my point is there would be no taxpayers' money. There'd be no $1.2 billion hanging out to dry. There'd be none of this taxpayers' money to pay if they had a followed industry and their department's decision. So Murray's just being naughty there. The other thing he said was we've got to get our lawyers in hand. Don't worry about getting our lawyers in hand. Our lawyers won the case. Our lawyers are playing A grade. The government's lawyers here are playing the under 12s. So I, I think what they can do is they can all step up and put their man pants on and they can close this case now because they've got a very generous counter offer. They can just get onto it and stop the finger pointing because this started with the Labor government. That's where it started. And we're still hurting and families and and industry is still hurting. David Connolly, he is president of the NT Cattlemen's Association. He was speaking to Matt Brand. You can read more on this counterclaim from the cattle industry against the federal government. Just search ABC Rural and Class Action and you'll find Dan Fitzgerald's online explainer. To the markets now, it was big sheep sale at Mouche today. Just over 9,000 sheep and lambs sold, so that's about 3,700 more than last week. Tracy Kilner's at the sale yards. Hi, Tracy. Numbers were up and prices continue to rise again for all prime categories. A larger yarding of trade and heavyweight lambs saw prices lift $10 with added processor competition, while the graziers pushed mutton prices up $5 with restocker Dorper ewes in demand selling to $56 a head. Plain sheep again showed no demand selling to minimal values. The lightweight lambs sold from $40 to $95. Trade weight lambs returned $90 to $131. And heavy lambs sold up to $141 a head. The heaviest crossbred hoggets made $75. Merino weather hoggets sold from $25 to $40. And new hoggets sold to $63 for heavyweights. Bony ewes ranged from $10 to $30, medium weight ewes made from $25 to $35 and heavy ewes with a fleece sold to $50 a head. Ram lambs returned $84 to $90 and mature rams sold from $10 up to $52 for the younger aged lines. 
This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through all those details today. It's been great to talk to you today. The One O'Clock News is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.